gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. It is a horrible idea that there is somebody who owns us, who makes us, who supervises us, who can convict us of court crime, just for what we can. watching. We have to get through. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. All of this could be part of a plan. It looks to me like a place where you'd get revenge on your crazy professors. Have a look at the headlock here. His technique was perfect. It is sweet and wonderful. G-Saw gang, have a plan. Postmodernist nonsense. They intend to hijack the gold. I said, well, how would you describe the prison scene? I said, baby, it was just wrong to wrong. Oh, his technique was perfect. These odds. Culture and anarchy. Sweet, 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 sweet. is Democracy Manifest. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast presents A Rationalist Critique of Deconstruction Demystifying Post-Structuralism and Derrida's Science of the Non Part 2 Structuralism's Event Structuralism, as a study of linguistics that arose out of the works of Ferdinand de Saussure and Claude Lévi-Strauss, is generally acknowledged to be a largely defunct rationalist approach to language that employed binary opposition, a species of antonymy, as the impetus to the creation of meaning within human language. I've always found this rationalist appellation to be somewhat troubling when applied to structuralism, for Saussure worked upwards from a root in irrational psychologism. He writes, Psychologically setting aside its expression in words, our thought is simply a vague, shapeless mass. Philosophers and linguists have always agreed that were it not for signs, we should be incapable of differentiating any two ideas in a clear and constant way. In itself, Thought is like a swirling cloud, where no shape is intrinsically determinate. No ideas are established in advance, and nothing is distinct, before the introduction of linguistic structure. Language, which arrives upon the structuralist scene in Big Bang fashion, gives order to the universe independent of the human will and rationality. A priorism is thus impossible before the messiah-like arrival of language, and rational action in exercising preferences is vitiated for pre-linguistic man. Until liberated from his vague, shapeless mass of neural networks, a tabula obscura, by a prison house of language, humankind floats in a strange psychological goulash, a chaotic realm unthinkable to modern humans, which the psycholinguist Steven Pinker once dismissed as a globule that morphs into whatever interpretation is most sensible at the moment. Though not a linguistic determinist of the strong variety, as many of his followers were, Saussure nevertheless prefigured some typical deterministic assumptions in what might be called a weak determinism that tended towards social constructivism. Thought, Saussure's lecture notes continue, K 
chaotic by nature, is made precise by the process of segmentation in the realm of action only through an agentless imposition of language itself. So Source saw language as a linear phenomenon. Namely, it moved from one word to the next in a causal chain, each word dependent upon its forebear like a genealogy with branching syntagma. It has often struck me that Saussure and the Irrationalist always admit the origins of logic and order within the negative space of a vague, shapeless mass by first supposing the vague, shapeless mass prior to order in the same way that shabby economists presuppose debt prior to profit-engineering labors. They thus fall into the error of presupposing that costs, namely deducting from capital stock already in place, could exist prior to capitalism without any conflict of interest between producers and consumers where property rights are in dispute. The debate that individuals who oppose negative space ideologies raise is not that costs, debts, and vague shapeless masses do not exist, but that they cannot exist without prior recognition of what is present. Preference, profit, and logical orders. In other words, the debate is not about whether the chicken comes before or after the egg, but instead lies in the debate over whether or not the chicken-egg canard is a false dichotomy. Both choices might be true in different frameworks. The chicken precedes the egg in one causal framework, and the egg precedes the chicken in another causal framework. The or in what came first, the chicken or the egg, is what shifts the framework towards a false dichotomy. The conjunction and suffices to answer the question, yet does not exclude the other option as incorrect in other circumstances. In other words, the thing that came first is the chicken and the egg in different temporal frameworks. Since Saussure believed that human thought was chaotic by nature and human action was necessarily unstructured prior to the establishment of signs, language provided the only means to rationality. To each language was its own logic, and human nature was essentially fragmented. It was only through language that humankind could bring means and ends together in a coherent fashion, much less to engage in rational cooperation. Logic might be translated, but there was never a pre-linguistic framework for the mind. Through language, rationality developed into a kind of internal stenographer pounding furiously at the keys of a typewriter, churning out reams of paper and a running commentary on cognitive events through a given social superstructure. But what was life like for the pre-linguistic human, lost in the swirl and chaos of irrationality? Were pre-linguistic humans incapable of distinguishing between a bush and a lion? Between a hand and a foot? Between mother and daughter? Between desires and reality? Or between an a priori subject and an object? Was human cooperation lost in feral irrationality? We know this to be untrue since even pre-human ancestors to modern man are capable of distinguishing between male and female. Such counter-arguments might phrase the structuralist position a little too simply, though perhaps they would not, since any system of signs and reference, a semiological system, was capable of constituting a language. Nevertheless, for Saussure, the very notion of language was a social event, 
and not an individual system of signs by which individuals attached words to real objects through direct apperception and signification. Individuals did not exchange language in order to assist in the satisfaction of individual wants through social cooperation, as I myself would assert. Language was studied as social, without its individual root in subjective valuation. The structuralist wanted to pick apart exchange to find empirical features, yet also to dismiss the human actors from the picture. This is like studying economics in the aggregate, and dismissing the human actors from the scene. Structuralism was primarily concerned with a system of external linguistics, the surface features of language, speech, and articulation, and treated linguistics with the heavy empirical hand. The structuralist set out to study language with the kind of seriousness and rigor that one might expect of stuffy scholars in the early 20th century, who were looking to mimic the successes of Newtonian physics in the realm of the human sciences. The preceding generation of philologists had studied language as one might study fossils. There is a science of language, Max Muller lectured the Royal Institute in London in 1863, as there is a science of the earth, its flowers, and its stars. This framework of linguistics was a break from logic and a priori grammar, for the Max Mullers of the world believed, like latter-day Bertrand Russell's, that one could treat human sciences in exactly the same spirit in which the geologist treats his stones and petrifications, in the same spirit in which the astronomer treats the stars of the heaven, or the botanist the flowers of the field. The structuralists were dismayed by the old philologist's backwards-looking, paleontological approach to linguistics, since language remained, for contemporary humans, a living phenomenon. In Outlook, the structuralists made a foray into new territory by including new external linguistic phenomena in their study with less focus upon anthropology and environment. They also touted a uniformity of structure in language itself, denying that the word tiger has a metaphysical essence tied to actual tigers, such that a tiger could ever, in itself, suggest the sound of tiger. The word tiger had to be compared to like-sounding terms in order to find where it differs, since this segmentation would provide the contrast required for distinctness. Any given language was thus self-referential in a social milieu, since most individuals, or so was the assumption, were reared within a linguistic setting that tended towards uniformity because of that self-referential system. While it is true that languages do have self-referentiality to a certain extent as a byproduct of cultural or social associations, such that individuals speak one language, several different languages, or blended languages, Spanglish for instance, language is not differentiated on a social level, since society is nothing more than the voluntary interactions of individuals seeking to satisfy wants through voluntary exchange. In method, structuralism was more of the same stone scrutinizing and human botany that its predecessors had erred into. It was more a posteriori Newtonian social physics, liveried in complex linguistic terminology. Somehow, the Saussureans believed that their study was rationalistic and not strictly empirical. At structuralism's very outset, Saussure passed by the substance of the praxeological sciences by summarily dismissing what was called grammar amongst the Greeks in a single sentence. 
He dispensed with logic and the subject-predicate standard altogether as a fitting approach to the subject. This passé fad of the millennia offered him no scientific or objective approach to language as such, and so Saussure dismissed internal linguistics, a priori grammar, on point of principle. In order to get at language itself, he had to find a way to dispense with the problem of epistemology that the field presented to his a posteriori methodology. Since logic had to be developed over time and compiled by thinkers, this is, however, a misunderstanding of what logic is, it was no fitting tool for analysis. How could one, from a logical perspective, examine language amongst individuals who are pre-logical? To presuppose that illogical individuals used language and preserved language simply because it was empirically functional and socially useful is to presuppose the rationality of using means to attain definite ends. Thus, the very substance of logic and rationality are required prior to the social and interpersonal exchanges that provide fodder for structuralist analysis. Many animals display features of rationality. What they lack is an ability to suppress short-run desires in order to calculate rationally for the attainment of long-run goals. We see early on in structuralism that studying language as an external entity has its uses in historical analysis, but we know that no learner of a foreign language can simply talk the history of language in its totality at a native speaker and call it a conversation without being guided by value and meaning, much less by making use of logical conventions and a priori schematics of grammar. Language precedes newborns in the same way that the chicken precedes the egg. The empirical features of language, its sounds and formalisms, are hammered out in prior exchanges that are codified into custom within a geographic and demographic locality. The new entrant to the language market learns these customs, but processes them for the sake of self-interest while using means to obtain ends. Language, as the running medium of exchange, equips the individual user to better cooperate with her peers and to calculate how best to persuade, categorize, and process the world. What was called grammar amongst the Greeks recognized at root that language is limited by human comprehension, a microeconomic concern. Notions of time, space, action, causation, and teleology. Intention, expectation, and meaning and value are integral to the dissemination and acceptance of language, as any student of a foreign language or a child with a made-up tongue learns rather quickly. The a priori subject-verb-object model, the subject-predicate standard, has yet to be exceeded in any analysis of language, and for a very important reason. One cannot describe non-events with non-causes that happen in no space and no time, even in a language with many valid null-subject structures. One could try to describe those events. Do not misunderstand me. But what is described as existing outside of time and space fails in and of itself, inasmuch as what is described is described in time and space by an active human working within the logical apparatus of mind to canvas something outside of time and space. Sometimes human actions fail to achieve their objectives. 
Where, then, was structuralism to start if it had no underlying logical apparatus of mind? One of the foundational principles of structuralism, and indeed, its most relevant contribution to the subject matter of this critique, is to be found in Saussure's attempt to force a rift between value and meaning. This was vital to Saussure's methodology, since he needed to create a fissure in the value-meaning unity, the capacity of a word to represent a certain idea in the mind, in order to keep language from being treated as mere nomenclature patterned upon a pre-linguistic logical structure of mind. In a way, Saussure needed to denude the emperor before he could point out that the emperor had no clothes, such that he could resume the sartorial process once again from a macro perspective, the social superstructure of language in the aggregate. If he could not fix in place a value-meaning dichotomy, then language would take us into either pure psychology or pure phonetics. Without that divide, the mind-body schism would reassert itself. In pure psychology lay the threat of psychological economics, or marginal utility theory. In structuralism's wake, Chomsky and linguistics has delved into thymology and linguistic competency to fix the errors in Saussure's methodology, but perhaps without realizing that it too has moved into the praxeological sciences. Conveniently enough for praxeology, the study of human action, Saussure phrased his argument in economic terminology, treating language as a medium of exchange. He writes, To determine the value of a five-franc coin, for instance, what must be known is, one, that the coin can be exchanged for a certain quantity of something different, for example, bread, and two, that its value can be compared with another value in the same system, for example, that of a one-franc coin or a coin belonging to another system, for example, a dollar. Similarly, a word can be substituted for something dissimilar, an idea. At the same time, it can be compared to something of like nature, another word. Its value is therefore not determined merely by that concept or meaning for which it is a token. It must also be assessed against comparable values, by contrast with other words. The content of a word is determined in the final analysis not by what it contains, but by what exists outside it. For Saussure, the value of a word was distinct from its meaning, but his argument would have to delve into subjective value economics and the problems of action to prove that this divorce was even possible. Saussure erred into that territory, but much at the peril of his argument. Prices are not values, and values are not prices. Prices mark a point of historical exchange where individuals value what they give up less than what they believe they will manage to obtain in exchange. Values do not get equaled out on the margin, forming an equality of value or parity of value that results in exchange at a given price. In a more formulaic equation, value is always a greater than or less than sign and never an equal sign. From a praxeological perspective, value is not in words or in doctrines but is instead reflected in human conduct. Value is indeed outside of things. It is not in quantitative measures of use or in labor, nor is it in speech or syllables measured out in value units. 
it is instead tied up in goal-oriented behavior manifest in human action. Preferring, choosing, acting, achieving goals, relieving uneasiness, communicating, reasoning, etc., within definite historical empirical contexts. Saussure was partly on the track of an important recognition that value and meaning are largely synonymous terms. But he fell into the trap of the classical economists, who tried to determine where value was in things. For Adam Smith, David Ricardo, and Karl Marx, labor was the value that was in things, and labor was human effort, the rationing of time, and the utility that the good represented, but only as observed in the market price of a historical exchange. Nevertheless, the labor theorists could not cope with the simple truth. Value is not in things, but rests instead in the subjective uses to which individual owners put those goods. Fossil fuels, the pool of the detritus of living beings coalescing into a putrid substance, has no intrinsic value. For many eons, it had no value at all. When a use was found for it to serve a human end, then and only then was it valuable, over and against a prior alternative when gauged by marginal productivity, such as steam energy. When we study language, we study its history. When we study its use, we study valuation, logic, a priori grammar, and human action. The use of a language always precedes its history. This is precisely why language can be misused, misunderstood, and misinterpreted. Usage can conflict with historical records, and some usages, despite these conflicts, can become historical records. That is largely how many slang terms become established meanings in any lexicon, and how language evolves from parent languages into local idioms and future parent languages. Contrary to his basic distinctions between theory and history, Saussure justified his method by noting that the English word sheep has the same meaning as the French mouton, but that the cognate of mouton, which is mutton, in English signifies the meat of the sheep, and thereby introduces a problem in the value-meaning unity. For in French, mouton covers both meanings, both the animal and its meat. Though the full scope of Saussure's meaning-value fissure is, perhaps, beyond the scope of the current investigation, some of the early failings of his external approach to linguistics can be seen in the cognate mouton-mutton distinction that he wishes to draw. Saussure has to freeze language in one sense in order to freeze it in another, and thus promote static differentiation, change without change. If a Frenchman in England were to employ mutton unconventionally, signifying a sheep in the field to an English companion, would he be understood? What does the Frenchman mean when he utters mutton? Does the Frenchman only mean what is actually understood by an Englishman, or an independent observer, a lexicographer? That is, he sees potential slabs of cooked meat on a plate, grazing in an English field. What if the English companion were to understand the Frenchman as signifying that the latter wished to eat the sheep for dinner? Does the Englishman not understand what he takes the Frenchman to mean? Does the independent observer have a privileged place in this exchange to say that there is a misunderstanding due to the meaning of the terms frozen in time, 
or that the two different meanings each has two meanings? What if the Englishman's hunch turned out to be correct, and the Frenchman was making a coded jest to signify his particular appetite for double entendre and meat simultaneously? Conversational understanding is a problem of cooperation and the ambiguity in words, namely the desire to cooperate and to split semantic differences to achieve goals by riddling out the ambiguities. And it is not a problem of intrinsic values of words and units of meaning. Traditional logic provides the framework by which to whittle down these ambiguities to near certainties. We may question whether or not the Frenchman has used the most efficient means to signification to achieve his end, but he definitely means what he means in any case. We would normally assume that context will bear out the proper meaning, since context provides the best indicator of what the particular word is used to signify within the teleological framework. If a misunderstanding arises through the mutton-mouton confusion, and the Englishman treats the sheep like mere meat and presents a sheep for dinner, and the Frenchman excuses himself as having meant something else entirely, such as simply remarking on the beauty of the pastoral scene where sheep, mouton, graze lazily in an English field, the Frenchman does not mean two things. He means one thing or the other. In structuralism, however, A is not dependent upon what an individual intends, since this would be too metaphysical to be scientific. A is not necessarily A. Instead, context alone provides the answer to meaning, since meaning and value reside within context that exists outside of the individual and resides within a social system, not an individual preference. So Surhead answers for these synchronic and diachronic problems of grammar and syntax, and he generally rejected the very notion of subjectivity ex cathedra in his study of language divorced from its linguists. Saussure's answers are almost entirely rooted in his value-meaning dichotomy. Saussure was aware that language is never carried out by the collectivity. He had no qualms about admitting that speech, consisting of linguistic acts, is always individual, and the individual is always master of it but he nevertheless strove to identify language in its collectivity from a distinctly macro perspective. No doubt, it is the new entrance entry into a language market that Saussure did not quite know how to reconcile. Somehow, language, its norms and formalisms, represented something different than individual usage. He always chose the chicken in the chicken or the egg canard. Language is not a function of the speaker, he argues, even though speech is an individual act of the will and the intelligence. But with his value-meaning fissure in place, this is a bit like saying that economics is not a study of individual action, but instead about outputs of various statistical aggregates. The difficulty that Saussure had to overcome was the same difficulty that macroeconomists and socialists daily attempt to obscure. In a free market, new entrants to the market must value the voluntary system for the sake of individual satisfaction as they enter it for their own benefit, and the system is not socially constructed beforehand on paper by a grand central planner. This is perhaps why so many macroeconomists look to intervene in the marketplace, 
to socialize its functions, and thus to install offices of regulation in order to introduce order into an anarchic system of exchange. Knowledge requires a vessel, but the vessel must value the knowledge, whether true or false, for it to carry any weight in action. It is a sphere of market interaction between individuals with different valuations where scarce means that have alternative uses find rates of exchange in return. Culture and market anarchy exert pressures upon the individual, but the individual may also use violence and coercion to force systems upon other people through conquest. Languages tend to shift under conquest, just as they tend to morph within the twin forces of market anarchy and cultural association. Saussure, like myriad economics departments of the contemporary Ivy League who play with lump-sum thinking under the Keynesian paradigm, was studying the mummified history of language without ever tapping into the living vein of his subject matter. This is not to say that Saussure's work was entirely useless, indeed, far from it. His preliminary inquiries into the divisions of internal and external grammars, the role of time and speech in human action, the micro and macro division of linguistic phenomena, and his summaries of phonetics and acoustics were all quite useful as a basic empirical foundation for linguistic studies. He could be quite a distinguished philologist when he applied himself. When we speak a language, we tap into its rich history, and we retailer the tailor to create new expressions that fit our age and circumstance. So Sur's historical study of languages did not even approach the problem of human action and its ramifications in questions of valuation outside of his cursory dismissal of the vulgar subject on his path to a science of language. Human action and valuation were simply not scientific or objective enough topics for his empirical method. Like the study of complex economic phenomena, the difficulty in studying languages, linguistics, speech, writing, and interpretation on a macro level lies in the fact that these top-down aggregates perceived as social linguistic phenomena are not the product of deliberate planning, but are brought about by means which nobody wanted or understood. Market prices in the aggregate, like languages, are an anarchic expression of exchanges that individuals enact through self-interest. Languages are not first created and planned from a top-down perspective, and afterwards used, just as supply is not first created without demand. A language is employed to satisfy its user, just as an individual's supply is collected to satisfy an individual's demand, and generally results in exchanges. The first speaker of a Promethean language utilizes sounds and signs to signify for an object, perhaps to organize the world for his own communication of knowledge to a listener. The listener must have a use for this sound or sign in order to utilize it and to index it in his future actions. Languages develop through supply and demand, as well as in subjective exchange. Individuals strive for definite ends that cannot be divorced from subjectivity. Saussure was a supply-side linguist who dismissed that supply and demand are two sides of the same coin. We might, by parsing Friedrich J. Hayek, conclude that the anthropomorphism evident in the scientistic study of languages from the God's-eye perspective rests not in the traditional logic and grammar that have generally attended such logical studies before the arrival of structuralism, and which treated of the most basic abstractions from the internal workings of the speaker's autonomous mind. 
Rather, the most damning anthropomorphism is found in the assumption that the existing system serves a definite function only insofar as its institutions have been deliberately willed by individuals. Errors, costs, and the ability to learn from experience, to see alternate uses in a means, all pressure the development of institutions and systems. These alternatives are not always the prime intent of human action, but they require the first expression of human action to even be known. Speakers play a complex linguistic game, and they bring with them certain innate cognitive abilities that adapt to the norms and rules of a language, which no one mastermind has willed into existence. Why a or an as indefinite articles are employed to signify one indefinite unit of something based on whether the succeeding word begins with a vowel or a consonant is one such man-made rule tailored, presumably, to lessen the difficulty of vocalizing two consecutive soft vowels without a hard stop. It is more difficult, or so we might argue, to vocalize a apple than an apple. And in a string of words such as follow shortly, two soft vowels articulated without touching the tongue to the upper palate tends to blur the distinction between the end of a former word and the beginning of the next term after the article A. For example, it is no wonder that in Northern Europe an apple is harder to grow than in Michigan, for reasons of climate. The sentence's construction may allow the hearer to hear Europa, the mother of King Minos of Crete, or perhaps the moon that orbits Jupiter, instead of Europe, if that sentence is not read and is instead only heard. When the tongue touches the upper palate and turns A into an, the sentence has better distinction for deciphering based upon empirical features of language that are processed by the mind. This kind of analysis of phonetics and articulation was always the best part of structuralist thinking, and of course, I should hope it need not be stressed, no criticism of structuralism in this discussion is an attempt to refute every structuralist insight. The fact that one unit plus another unit of the same good equals two units of that good, even if one liter of water is added to another liter of water, since two liters of water can be measured back out into single liters, is not subject to falsification. We could always utilize different units of measurement but the underlying mathematical assumptions will always be valid where the conditions are true. The fact that no two units of a good, n, a given unit, and n minus 1, the marginal unit, do not have equal values is also not subject to falsification. Unit n, which may in fact be multiple units of n, if the multiple is used as a group or a bundle, is applied to the most pressing desire for satisfaction, and n minus 1 to the second most pressing desire. By way of example, if I have two apples, I may eat one apple now to satisfy my taste, and save another apple for two hours later in order to satisfy my future hunger. The marginal unit will eventually serve a primary function, but for now it is just n minus 1, the marginal unit, and it is applied to the second most pressing desire, which lies in future consumption. The subject-predicate standard of logic also holds true for language, and this standard is deduced from the time-invariant features of human action. Subject, actor or cause, plus predicate, 
action and means requiring change from a state of no knowledge or inaction equals a clause, which is a knowledge claim. Information may be true or false, but the subject predicate standard remains whether or not the information that is known happens to be true. No individual willed these latter deductive standards into existence in the way that A or and and Apple are combined for convenience, such that humans should think and speak in deductive standards alone. Humans cannot, and likely never will, communicate non-events that happen in no space and no time. To do so would require a feat of divination or a human act characteristic of deity to create something from nothing outside of space and time. Human action, using scarce means to attain subjectively valued ends, presupposes the subject-predicate standard. If an individual does not know that she can interact with the world in order to redirect means to relieve her uncertainties, then she cannot do much of anything. If an individual knows that she can, in the idealistic fantasy, manifest satisfaction without using means to relieve uncertainties, then all means are available at hand in her paradise of abundant resources, which pretty much presumes the mortal conditions of a deity that cannot be reconciled to human understanding. Understanding requires that an individual use scarce means to achieve specific ends, and to forego alternatives in the process, thereby accruing costs in time and space. When a linguistic system is codified and studied within a linguistic community governed by law and compulsion, namely by grammar teachers and public schools, a language is often seen as something stable, or as a game with fixed rules. But these rules and norms are only ever established in definite exchanges at definite places and times, driven by individual valuations, memory, slips, errors, and innovations. Intellectuals within a culture wish to preserve standards for high-level discourse, but there are always counter-establishment movements that favor play and rhetorical flourishes over standardization. Logical analysis gradually whittles the language down to a precise vocabulary, establishing the parameters by which speakers of any language can root out precise meanings within a linguistic framework to accomplish goals. But problems arise when the language itself is seen as a fixed game created by social collectives through a host of static cultural rules and that logic and rationality are byproducts of the very things they produce. History is fixed. It will not happen in a different way than it actually happened. But a skilled linguist will, on the morrow, execute greater care in qualitative expositions of language than the unskilled Philistine. Many modern languages are bastard children of disparate cultures, and subspecies of languages, riddled with slang and ambiguous grammar, proliferate amongst countercultural movements that are often promoted by the various trolls of cultural inheritance, both intelligent and unintelligent. As much as we love the high culture of King Lear, we also love to see the countercultural movements of a blustering Falstaff in Shakespeare's plays. The subject-predicate standard is evident in all languages, which is why we are able to translate tongues and to understand one another by adopting other languages with different empirical forms. Humans simply do not have an alternative to acting within time and space, using means to attain ends. Collectives and cultures 
cannot perform predicates with intention. Namely, a plural subject cannot perform a singular predicate without presupposing the existence of singular subjects capable of performing singular predicates. We are always presumes that I am. Thank you for listening to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. Please make sure to leave us a great review on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube, and check in from time to time to look for updates. Follow me on my Twitter handle at anarchy underscore culture. Keep an eye out for our January issue of The Dial, our quarterly literary magazine, which caters to the libertarian, anarchist, and modern transcendentalist intellectual. We will be podcasting selections of poetry from The Dial over the coming months. So if you would like to contribute poetry and hear your works promulgated throughout the world, please see our submission guidelines at www.culture-anarchy.com. Also, if you are a libertarian blogger or essayist and would like to contribute relevant short essays for consideration to be featured on our podcast as we fill out more content and increase our volume, please forward me your contact information by contacting us via our website, and we shall see if you are saying the best that has been thought and said. We do address cultural, political, and social issues with humor, subversiveness, and levity as they pop up, and we will generally feature content with specific thematic structure. As we conclude our eight-part series, The Spirit of Market Anarchy, stay tuned for our new series, which attacks the root of cultural Marxism in the Collegiate Humanities, a rationalist critique of deconstruction, demystifying post-structuralism, and Derrida's science of the non. So please come see us at www.culture-anarchy.com. The social constructivism that infected later structuralist movements naively focused on a social structure which has been forcibly imposed, as it were, on the community from without, rather than accepting that there existed forces working quite independently of the aspirations of mankind, and that the combination of their activities gave birth to structures which furthered the endeavors of the individual, even though they had not been designed for that purpose. Anarchy is everywhere around us, springing into order through human endeavors. But it is the hubris of the critic, when looking at the spontaneous order that arrives, to presume that social order is manufactured by culture, 
and not by individual self-interest who voluntarily cooperate in interpersonal exchanges that are not in direct conflict with the well-being of the group. Society is, we must remember, the sphere of voluntary contract and private property rights. Contemporary socialist North Korea is a giant pack of people with almost no society whatsoever. Prior to the academics' attempt to codify a language under a government, cultural associations driven by social status, jealousy, wit, intelligence, religion, tradition, taboos, innovation, humor, and hatred guide a language's evolution through its individual speakers. In other words, both culture and anarchy guide language, evident in self-interested interpersonal exchanges for mutual benefit. But even those individual speakers do not harbor uniform, static, or homogenous opinions with regard to those collective agencies. The idea that language is willed into order as a social structure from the top down is probably the last remnant of that primitive attitude which made us invest with the human mind everything that moved and changed in a way adapted to perpetuate itself or its kind. We never control a language in a historical sense, the way that structuralists believe that we could, since we never grasp every transaction that has occurred in a single tongue. Nor yet do we grasp every transaction taking place while we are looking backwards to grasp every historical transaction while directing what is grasped towards a future understanding of our historical evidence. Rather, we employ a language through logic and grammar. It would thus be folly to start, as Saussure did, from the system as a unified whole, and by process of analysis to identify its constituent elements, which are then passively registered by the individual. The structuralist method arrives at a picture of linguistic history channeled as gnosis by ersatz humanoid automata. But this is by no means a satisfying picture of language because it flies in the face of everything we know about human creativity, failure, psychology, genetics, sexuality, and the revolution of ideas. How do errors creep into the system if the system is not processed before it is understood? The value-meaning fissure he sought to break was the meeting point between empiricism and rationalism, between the a posteriori and the a priori, between nurture and nature, between evidence and logic. There was no fissure, since there is not mind without matter, nature without nurture, empiricism without rationalism, and evidence without logic. So Sur made an error. There is logic and evidence. There is nature and nurture. There is a posteriori, and there is a priori. There is empiricism, and there is rationalism. The fissure driven by the desire to obtain a God's-eye analysis is also, and much more to its detriment, illogical. Whenever we engage in such top-down analyses, we are apt to treat only of stereotypes. Macroeconomics tends to fail for the same reasons when it pretends to theory and not only because it is undesirable. The macro-treatment of human activity as an aggregate, from the perspective of what results from subjective striving after ends, cannot be thought out to its root in individual action without encountering self-contradictions. Actions have costs, and these unintended consequences replicate when we examine them in a historical frame, as researchers, many of which are neither experienced nor intended per se, Purchasing a car yields a diminution of capital stock for the buyer 
and an increased potential for transportation, and selling results in an increased stock for the seller, yet purchasing the car also presupposes that neither party, at that moment, decided to dance the rumba in the rain. An even more troublesome problem arises in Saussure's monetary metaphor for language, which presupposes a market pricing mechanism and the entire theoretical sphere of fiduciary media in the very concept of money. The determination of value for a coin or a dollar is not dependent solely upon the fact of its exchangeability or its relation to other minted units, as we can see in our fiat currency economy by contrasting gold with arbitrarily valued dollars, or by comparing pre-inflationary dollars with post-inflationary dollars, or even by comparing dimes and quarters in 1964, prior to the Coinage Act of 1965, with dimes and quarters five years later, which were completely debased and had lost all content of silver. For coins are instead valued upon the supply of goods beyond the scope of one's direct economic knowledge and the definite quantities of goods A and B that an actor must choose between whose values are weighed on the margin. The value of a five-franc coin does not depend on the value of a one-franc coin. The value of a five-franc coin in relation to a one-franc coin depends upon the grains of silver across coins, or the grains of gold across coins. One troy ounce of silver is approximately 31.1 grains of silver, with each grain measuring approximately 64.798 milligrams. Bad silver is not of equal value with good silver, and adulterated gold is not of equal value with pure gold. A coin with fewer grains, which has been clipped, shaved, or sweated by a coin debaser, or by long-standing use, is not of equal value with another coin. A dollar is equal to the market price of the grains of silver, which should tend towards uniformity in the marketplace at equilibrium. The word dollar depends upon the valuation of the grains of silver in portable units that facilitate storage, heavier units, or exchange, smaller units, as well as the size of the exchange, heavier units being better for larger exchanges. Now, coin debasement may fool the casual observer who trusts the coin's content because of its consistency in grain, as the Byzant was once entrusted from Europe to Asia in ancient times, which was protected from adulteration and debasement by draconian Byzantine laws and scrutinizing goldsmiths, but casual observers tended to employ goldsmiths and metalsmiths and their coinage stamps, the marks, to verify the content of coinage under monetary metal standards in order to ensure that they were not being cheated of the grains of gold or silver. One thing lost upon the casual reader of Saussure, or the Marxist, or the academic professor in the humanities today, is that Saussure was wrong about coin valuations and prices even in his own day, where metal coins still actually traded hands in the denominations of dollars and ounces, and that since the 1930s, most first-world democratic societies have been long alienated from sound monetary practices, and thus lack the knowledge to spot that error. In a fiat paper money America, which has been purely fiat since 1971, when Nixon defaulted on the dollar and thus the national debt by moving the United States off of the gold standard once and for all, and which had been progressing through debasement towards default through the Bretton Woods system since 1945 and even since 1913, when the Federal Reserve System, the monopoly cartel of big banks that comprise a central bank, was established by law and granted a monopoly on money issues, in a fiat paper economy, money is not money. It is a money substitute. We no longer quite understand what money is, 
or what a coin actually is and how it is valued. Money exists before legal tender laws exist, before central banks exist, and even before all-powerful states exist. Wampum was money, but it was the Native American money consisting of small seashells. There was no central bank, there was no all-powerful state, and yet money existed. Money is a market medium of exchange. Money can be any commodity that a people can utilize as money. And money is not fixed. Silver experienced a rather large drop in price, its market value, when Spain unearthed silver in the New World and transported the precious metal to Europe. An increase in the supply of silver money caused a fall in the price of silver money in the same way that an increase in the supply of computers causes a fall in the price of computers, as we see when prices fall towards equilibrium with each new generation of technology. Since most modern users of money are economically illiterate, most cannot even conceive of a real commodity money. Nevertheless, gold and silver still trade as money in the marketplace through commodity exchanges and coin collectors, though they are manipulated by governments to hide the inflation that central banks engender, through price-controlling interest rates, in order to tax from their citizens the fiat paper monies forced upon democratic societies by legal tender laws without their notice or their consent to taxation by constant debasement of money substitutes. The price of gold hit a record high in January 1980 at $850 an ounce. Today, one troy ounce sells for $1,200 to $1,400, depending on the stock market shakiness. Gold is measuring the decline in value of the fiat paper dollar, which tallies up to 96% since 1913. Meanwhile, gold's value continually increases as a result of fiat paper inflation and bank credit expansion. In another way of looking at things, gold has not changed much. It has remained stable, and the dollar has ultimately proved unstable since 1913, and disastrously so for the saver. Dollar devaluation in the post-1913 economy by means of interest rate manipulation, price-controlling borrowed money, is actually the cause of the boom-bust cycle in capitalism that most first-world dwellers decry as the fault of capitalism, and which is actually the fault of state interference with market prices and monetary systems for the sake of looting the public in excessive taxation without their notice because of their ignorance, while tempting them with economic stimulus, malinvestment, and easy-to-procure loans that are later much harder to repay because price-controlled interest destroys their savings. We lost much of our cultural heritage of sound money knowledge due to the fact that FDR in 1933 confiscated monetary gold in America, and the ownership of gold remained illegal and prosecutable until 1975, at which point monetary gold was no longer money in the first world, though it would still trade as a commodity, or a commodity money, outside of legal tender laws. Also, minted units have different applicability based on their market price. I do not value 100 pennies in the same way that I value one paper dollar. Mathematically, they are the same. The units may be compared within a system, and someone at a central bank decided that 100 units of copper pennies, or whatever worthless alloy currently has replaced copper, will trade for one unit of another coinage or paper. But this does not mean that I value them the same. Their prices remain relative to one another, but value is not price. Subjectively, one is much harder to carry in higher value units than the other when engaging in more costly exchanges. 
I am even willing to pay someone to change out 1,000 pennies into $10 in fiat paper for a 5% fee. I am also willing to trade out all 1,000 pennies, or all $10, for quantities of gold, and pay a conversion fee on top of spot at that. The units are valued differently by the users for their portability in exchange and abstention from exchange, namely savings. So to say that a 1 franc coin and a 5 franc coin have a fixed exchange value is 1, wrong, insofar as no two units have the same value, 2, optimistic, insofar as governments always try to debase coinage and cheat the public with fiat paper issues and inflation, and 3, True, in the sense that if there is a sound market standard for money and enough cultural pressure to punish coin debasers and most especially the governments and central bankers who debase coinage or in democratic societies who price control interest rates to debase fiat paper dollars that are raised upon debt instruments like government securities, then there is a chance that the units will remain convertible with relative price equilibrium. Here we see the point at which deconstruction could make its entry into structuralism. And here we also see where praxeology creeps in to destroy the structuralist assumption. One must note that at the root of things is an actor who must choose between alternatives. In a money economy, a coin is subject to supply and demand like any other good or commodity. And the price fetch for that coin in trilateral exchange, or for the goods A and B, depends just as much upon capital accumulation, production, and competition as upon individual valuation and the law of marginal utility. Deconstruction appears to have captured this market aspect of exchange, the pressure of markets and human activity, and how they interact to form a price that allows us to rationally calculate, as individual actors, the best exchange in conformity with our individual priorities and margins. Without a comprehensive theory of money and credit, we cannot even appreciate the intricacies of a metaphor that compares language to a medium of exchange like a money. Macroeconomists often begin with a central bank, a social institution brought into existence by government decree, whose purpose is to overthrow money as such and to introduce government debt, or expropriation, as a medium of exchange, with fixed exchange rates and units, or otherwise to regulate the coinage. It is impossible to fix a price or a value for exchange, namely to fix meaning independent of a speaker, without causing shortages in the supply of a good, even in matters of money. For example, look at Gresham's Law. If goods are scarce and coins are rife, the coin will have little value in comparison with the goods for which it might be exchanged. The exchange relation between a 5-franc coin and a loaf of bread may change in terms of money prices depending on the level of capital accumulation in France, which supplies a surfeit or paucity of bread based on demand and agricultural yields. The bread's price may jump if potatoes suddenly become scarce as actors reevaluate goods on the margin, as well as the soundness of the currency in domestic and foreign markets. Under a condition of runaway inflation or debasement, A monetary unit may not fetch any goods at all. In the 1780s, whiskey traded as currency where coins were scarce in the Ohio Valley on the American frontier. And in Virginia, tobacco leaves often served as currency. How a five-franc coin is valued against the entire world of resources plays into the monetary system, since money is a commodity just like tobacco, which was also a money. 
a money that is not a commodity, a government-issued note, for example, is also not a money. If a Basque nationalist from Spain moves to Kansas, where his language, Euskara, has no currency whatsoever, his language does not lose its value entirely. It does lose significant utility as a medium of exchange for him, since English would equip him to converse and exchange much more successfully in everyday life but only if he desires to converse or exchange. Demand for Euskara is virtually non-existent in Kansas. But should our Basque nationalist suddenly find another Euskara-speaking individual in his neighborhood, he may suddenly value this exchange in Euskara very highly, since exchanges become possible in his most honed medium of conversation. English may fall by the wayside on the margin, for the moment, even though in the greater picture, English still has a certain advantage for him in the future. There is, in this parochial picture of the utility of a language based upon supply and demand, a signal of the importance that must be given to a certain level of linguistic accumulation in a given locality to support a language, and the subjectivity of value based upon that supply, which highlights the important economic underpinning for the exchange and reception of language. One often has to invest much time in learning a second or third language, and the disutility of labor must be overcome by one's desire to accumulate resources and to facilitate exchange as opposed to mere cultural and linguistic isolation. This kind of language shock in the preceding example of Kansas is like the monetary shock of wampum in the face of the European gold standard after the arrival of European settlers on the North American continent, and sometimes the arrival of conquerors. Wampum was the preferred medium of exchange in the settled regions on the eastern coast amongst the Iroquois and Narragansett tribes, which was a honed and crafted unit made of quahog clamshells formed into cylinder-shaped beads, which could be strung into a necklace. If Native Americans wished to trade in European goods by voluntary exchange— as many Native Americans indeed wished to trade, especially for guns and ammunition to facilitate hunting with more success and less effort, as well as for conquest and self-defense from other Natives as well as Europeans, then they had to buy into the gold standard at some point. Wampum had no currency throughout Europe, and Native Americans did not have the means, capital accumulation, private property, capital structures, or monetary units sufficient to buy into that European system, even though more industrious European settlers, because they were more productive due to more efficient technology, had the means to collect many monetary seashells, though not the technology to necessarily find more gold as efficiently as they could find seashells, in order to buy up all of the produce they desired from native peoples in exchanges through wampum, while crashing the monetary system through hyperinflation. Wampum traded amongst both whites and natives where gold was harder to procure. Colonial governments added a secondary pressure to wampum's overthrow by demonetizing wampum for the payment of taxes from settlers who lacked English coin. Prior to government interference, the hyperinflation was facilitated by settlers simply through collecting more shells than inland natives could accommodate in that monetary system relative to gold and goods, the level of capital accumulation. Force was not utilized here, though it was utilized in demonetization by colonial governments. Gold was a superior monetary metal, which is why it has long been the world's monetary metal in market exchanges prior to the monetary destruction engendered by the 20th century's socialistic engineers. Gold is harder to obtain than wampum, 
especially where gold is distributed so widely in private possession already. The natives were better off with gold than they were with wampum, which is precisely why they chose to utilize gold and other commodities and to abandon wampum without the issuance of force, in the way that democratic societies utilize force to demonetize their markets by criminalizing possession of metals and expropriating private property through taxation at the point of a government gun and to socialize their financial sectors. Gold, which is no longer a monetary metal by law in the West, continues to circulate as a monetary metal in the marketplace. Individuals purchase gold and silver with their national currencies, and will even pay premiums over spot to obtain those metals, because they do not have confidence in their national currency, which is always being inflated and debased. The value-meaning fissure that Saussure strives to make is not a fissure. His monetary metaphor is, in short, a very good metaphor for language that nevertheless points out some of the failings of Saussure's approach to linguistics. In order to treat language externally, Saussure had to rid himself of teleology and rational cooperation at the root of language and money, two examples of spontaneous order, before he could then speak of external values to justify his human botany and central planning. Saussure wanted to envision meaning as lying someplace between projection and reception. Thoughts transformed into sound as signs hit the senses packed with meaning. Even so, meaning was determined by the relation of one word or sign to another word or sign, and not to intentionality. Between the two sides of the tabula rasa lay an intertemporal margin, where the study of language was supposed to occur and where meanings were supposed to be held constant. In order to find a stable meaning in language from a macro perspective, one had to isolate one word and then to riddle out its opposite. In Saussure's system, it was only through binary opposition that meaning could finally be settled within the linguistic superstructure independent of human action. Saussure fooled himself into thinking that he was discovering a theory of language, when in reality he was only ever studying the history of language and meaning by projecting upon the superstructure his own subjective valuations. He was looking for, of all things, the time-invariant feature of history. (laughs) Value, he argued, has no other rationale than usage and general agreement. An individual acting alone is incapable of establishing a value. Demand, in other words, is not an individual's preference. It is the sum totality of individual preferences. This is like saying that 1 plus 1 does not equal 2. 2 is already there before 1 plus 1 occurs. In a rational sense, regarding the a priori element of mathematics in epistemology, this is true. But one house, resulting from human action that transforms one supply of lumber and one supply of stone, does not already exist where only the sum total of nature exists the two that represents the trees and the stone prior to human action. While no individual can establish a value for all society, this is not the result of an individual's inability to value something. It results from the subjectivity of value, the fact that all preference presupposes the inequality of value, even in exchanges that occur at a price where, as lookers-on, we assume a parity in value. An apple trades for an orange in one exchange, but the apple is at once more valuable to one actor than the orange, and the orange is simultaneously more valuable than the apple to the other actor. 
An individual acting alone cannot even act without value and meaning. For action is an enactment of the will, the desire to pluck an apple or an orange, to harvest goods against the threat of scarcity, employing means and ends to effect change in a world that does not spread a paradise of abundant resources before her at a whim. Nature is a zero. It is the potential for abundance, if human labor is applied to it. But it does not offer all goods without human effort. Furthermore, values are never established, once and for all, since valuation lies in choosing and preferring between available quantities of goods and meanings, not in choosing between all the goods and all the meanings. Individuals choose between a relation of goods that is never quantitatively fixed in the historical empirical realm, since the province of human action is change in a world of scarce resources. Individuals give up what they value less in order to obtain what they value more. Action, all action, presupposes this fact. The price thus affected in exchange has all the appearances of parity, but both sides in an exchange value what they receive more than what they sacrifice. Otherwise, an exchange would never take place. Such truths apply not only to the speakers of a language, but to the linguist as well. We trade our ideas to receive feedback in order to settle some psychological uneasiness, but we generally value that feedback more than subjective certainty. And here I must note that conquest by means of brute force is not implied as exchange. Conquest can explain some decisions that a conquered individual makes on the margin. To adopt the conqueror's tongue is a sign of deference, as opposed to being treated as a suspicious foreigner. To submit to rule rather than risk personal loss. To adopt a larger colonial perspective and to benefit by inclusion, as opposed to holding on to native culture and upholding individual liberty, at the cost of inclusion in a foreign culture imposed by conquest. We do not act and communicate and avoid, even though some prophets and sociopaths attempt to do just that. Empirical language cannot be studied as a purely individual phenomenon, in the sense that the first communication of a single word requires that someone first hear it, who was also not the speaker. Language requires exchange before evidence is apparent for study and its spread. There must be two people for there to be evidence to third parties of language's existence. But to develop that single word, the first word, the speaker must have first had some means and desires to first develop that word and to articulate it to the hearer. The hearer had to sacrifice time and attention to process that word. The value and meaning of a word is developed individually. But the price at which words exchange is developed where either party sees greater value in exchanging time and attention, or even labor, to obtain what is communicated. The price is not the same thing as the value. The price is evidence of prior valuation. In a praxeological sense, Saussure was studying prices, historical exchange relations, that resulted from valuation which is subjectively determined as an individual's response to his environment. So far as the phenomenon of language is concerned, there is no intertemporal margin where meaning is held constant. 
The value meaning unity remains in place and never really suffers the fracture that Saussure attempts to make. If there is a value meaning fissure, Saussure was not the one to discover it. We may speak of the historical meanings of words through logical analysis and historical study, and we may establish relatively stable scientific definitions by studying etymological roots, but we are never dealing with the living thing in itself in totem. Language in itself is always beyond the scope of any one linguist's grasp of an all-encompassing structure. We can only study language through a priori grammar, subject, actor, or a cause, plus a verb, action and change, plus an object, a means, and traditional logic. We may know one thing at a time, and not all things. Action, which is choosing, the conjunction or, and preferring, already presupposes these facts as well. The structuralists push forward in the belief that the difference between value and meaning established a structural difference principle by which words were shown to attain meaning through their differences to one another and to ideas, or values. The structuralist root in antonomy harkened back to the pre-Socratic philosophers, and particularly to Anaximander. To put the structuralist argument simply, an individual knows what raw food means, namely uncooked food, only because one already knows what cooked food is, namely non-raw food. According to the theory of binary opposition, knowledge at large and language as the expression of knowledge are composed of myriad binary oppositions and concepts, sounds, signs, and syntax. In the structuralist paradigm, antonymic oppositions arise between relative concepts and things, up versus down, hot versus cold, black versus white, and so on. For the structuralists and their foremost critics, the deconstructionists, though deconstruction's criticism took the opposition one step further, the very concepts of raw and cooked could only have arrived at existence when the first transition from raw to cooked food was made within the range of culinary arts at some point in human history. Hence, the structuralists relied on empirical data even when constructing their rationalist premises for language out of that empirical data. Each linguistic unit that attained a meaning was defined as the thing that everything else was not. This difference principle fashioned a vision of the world as a chain of negative existential propositions forever running onwards in a chain of infinite semantic negation. It is, of course, much easier to classify the simple binary oppositions for entities commonly arranged in standardized empirical scales, namely heat, height, color, or for the specific properties, concretes such as adjectives, and orientation of things, up versus down, raw versus cooked, than it is to classify the binary opposites of absolutes, say, a twig or the internet. The opposite of black is not white, in a logical description of opposites. The opposite of black is non-black. The opposite of up is not down. Rather, the opposite of up is non-up. Left and right are neither up nor down, yet both are oppositional to up. Motion and change in state and space are relative to trajectory. If an individual turns left at a crossroads where he should have stayed straight in order to get to the marketplace and winds up at a police station, an individual can draw a line diagonal to the line between the origin and the destination which describes the path between the intended goal, the marketplace, 
and the actual terminus to the left of the goal, the police station. This new line has two points at either end, and those points are definitely opposites. Even if some other line between origin and destination elsewhere might call that mistaken left turn wrong, and perhaps not opposite. Any point in any line outside of the intended destination would be classed as wrong and opposite the intended direction of travel. Timbuktu is opposite to the marketplace. The intended direction of travel was the market, and any other stop on the way is not the market. It is the opposite of the marketplace, the opposite of the intended destination. We may prefer to move on a given wrong vector that does not carry us as far from our intended goal as some other given vector, but that opposition remains. For example, if I intend to travel north, but wind up traveling northwest at some point, I will prefer a northwestern vector to a southern vector, since I have not strayed as far from north while on that northwestern vector. Neither northwest nor south, however, leads to the intended destination. One begins to see the teleological underpinnings of the dilemma. Whenever we use the term opposite in a more empirical fashion, we have presupposed the existence of two poles for distinction and gradation. A, a definite pole, and non-A, an indefinite pole, which is not what is experienced. In between black and white lie all the colors of the rainbow, but black and white as shades, skin colors, and ethnicities are very much opposites in the way that black and white as species of light are not. Black is the absence of light, whereas white is the combination of all the colors of light or the reflection of the entire spectrum of visible light. A black man is not the absence of a white man, as it regards his skin color. Heredity and genetics do not obey the same universal rules as light. Heredity can, even if white or black ancestors exist, yield a black man, or a white man with a certain range of genetic probability. The absence of light will never yield the combination of all reflected light. The absence of a white parent can, as the yield of some rare genetic probabilities, still yield a clearly white child to two black biological parents if white ancestors exist. If we fail to make the distinction between the specific opposition taking place between black and white, then the default universal opposition is not between black and white as abstract constructs, but between black and non-black and white and non-white, as concepts within the realm of rational analysis, which is the realm of purposive human action. These indefinite non-categories are an extension of or, or or to the nth degree. In an economics textbook, or to the nth degree signifies a cost, an alternative foregone. Jacques Derrida, the founder of Deconstruction, took the structuralist paradigm one step further when he spotted a glaring flaw in the structuralist theory of binary opposition by highlighting the role that non-categories play in differential analysis, a realization that he described as structuralism's event. Derrida was correct, and he arrived at an insight, arrived at long before in economics, that costs play a role in any alternative chosen, and that knowledge is not gnosis, it does not float around outside of the empirical prejudices of individuals. Because structuralism was a system of order that presupposed its own structurality, 
or stability as a constructive linguistic theory that focused upon what was presently selected over and against what was actively rejected, then there had to be something to give structuralism its own objective value, its structural essence, a cause to the effect structure. But because structuralism had dismissed the human actors from the picture, and the preferences remained as stereotypes on an intertemporal margin absent human actors, a void remained in the picture. If the possibility for the communication of signs, signifiers, and linguistic mediums was made possible by the constructive apperception of differences between things and concepts, and even then between words themselves once spoken, then structuralism could only exist if it were situated within a kind of negative space. Structuralism's order would always carry with it that vague and shapeless mass from which language was seen to emerge, namely the logical structure of mind supposedly created by language, would always carry with it rhetoric in the pre-structural chaos of thought. Deconstruction was that negation of similitude, presupposed by the opposition in binary opposition. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. You guys have got to try the cold chocolate. I had five pupils. What is the charge? Eating a meal? We spend so much money now that we can borrow nearly $3 billion a day from foreigners. That's a lot of pockets. The wars never end. Release the world. Release the world. Release the world. You are listening to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. We can't cut anything until we change our philosophy about what government should do. That assumes he doesn't care about political agendas. But I never realized the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics. The wars never end. They they attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq for 10 years. the best that has been thought and said. As always, featuring the beats of the Passion Hi-Fi on SoundCloud. Their track Slaughter and the Spanish Winter. Follow them on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Give them a great rating.